Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Hannah Abrams, and as always, I'm joined by Avi Cooper and Tony Brew. How are you guys doing? Not too bad. I'm super excited for tonight's uh, topic. Yeah, doing great. Let's do this. Awesome. So today we are talking about dyspnea as a symptom of acute myocardial infarction or ischemia. Put it another way, we're talking about why dyspnea is considered an anginal equivalent. So Tony, this is one of the first tutorials that you posted. What got you interested? Uh, So a few things. Um, First, dyspnea is obviously very common. Uh, Many of our patients present with a chief complaint of dyspnea. But we also all experience it as individuals, either uh, through exercise or if we have conditions like asthma when we're acutely sick. So I think we all have a personal sense of what dyspnea is like, uh, and a lot of our patients experience dyspnea. And that connection of dyspnea with coronary artery disease, I think, is one that medical students learn very early on. I think you're doing a review of systems and you, you meet a patient who says they have chest pain. It's almost immediately uh, in your mind to say, okay, any shortness of breath, any sweating. And so that connection, I think, is one that we learn early. Um, And it's one that uh, the clinicians of centuries ago uh, had noted. So Heberden and Osler in the 1700s and the early 1900s made this connection between coronary artery disease and a presentation of dyspnea. But it wasn't really until uh, the middle of the 20th century uh, that it came a little bit clear that it was truly an anginal equivalent. So one interesting study I came across was published in 1968. I found the results kind of provocative, and, and I think they ring at least somewhat true to patients I see now. So they included uh, 184 patients who had coronary artery disease, and they didn't have heart failure or cardiomegaly because they, they didn't want the symptom of dyspnea in association with heart failure to kind of interfere with their interpretation of the results. And these 184 patients all underwent stress testing. And when the patients noted uh, were noted to have ischemia on the EKG during stress testing, they were asked about symptoms. And 27% had dyspnea as their only symptom. 24% had dyspnea followed by chest pain. 17 just had chest pain. And another 11% had no symptoms at all. So the, the authors kind of took this as an indication that we really should expand our questioning of patients who we might think have CAD to not just the chest pain angina, but also to dyspnea, this idea of, again, of an anginal, quote unquote, equivalent. But to get to like your original question, Hannah, you know, when I looked into this topic for the first time a couple of years ago, um, it was because I didn't realize or didn't have an understanding of why CAD without heart failure would lead to shortness of breath. And so I, I, I wanted to look into it and, and see if I could find a, an explanation. And, and fortunately, there's something there. Hmm. So, Tony, is this a, you know, obviously we're talking about coronary artery disease. We're assuming that there is a problem with the heart and angina. But is this primarily a heart problem, a lung problem, some, you know, some other part of the body that's, um, that's causing these patients to be dyspneic? As a pulmonologist, I'm partial to it being a lung problem. <laughs> Just a, a priori, but what do you, what do you, what did you find? Um, so obviously it's going to probably overlap, uh, even if it begins with the heart. Um, and some of the studies that, that kind of showed that it begins with the heart were from, again, the mid 1900s. And it was sort of around the time that we began floating catheters into LVs and LAs and RVs and began measuring pressures that we were able to 
um, sort of see some of these connections. And so some of the earliest observations uh, were that when you had someone who was in the middle of coronary ischemia having angina, there was a rise in their left ventricular end diastolic pressure, their LVEDP. And so I'll give you an example of, of one of these studies. And it was also actually in 1968, like the, the first one I mentioned. And this was a group that published out of Mayo. And they included 19 patients with CAD and five patients as controls who didn't have known CAD. And they again exercised them. But this time, uh, what they did is they uh, had a catheter in the LV and they measured their pressures at rest and then with exercise. And the, the patients with CAD had higher resting LVEDPs, about 19 millimeters of mercury versus 16, but they also increased their LVEDP more with exercise. They went from 19 to 30 versus uh, 16 to 20 uh, for the patients who didn't have known CAD. And interestingly, this group also found that if you gave uh, nitro as a pretreatment, it kind of blunted this increase in LVEDP. So, so again, the upshot, and this is not the only study, there are others, when patients with CAD exercise, there's an increase in their left ventricular end diastolic pressure. And so the question becomes, like, why, of course, does this lead to um, dyspnea? And, and actually also, even before that, like, why is that happening? Yeah, so um, I've now been an ICU intern for about a week. Uh, Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Board certified. You look, you look very well rested. Thank you. Today is my day off, so I had to learn something. <laughs> so, um, okay, so we've talked a little bit about an elevated wedge pressure, which is our surrogate for left ventricular and diastolic pressure, right. but is a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, how that can indicate in someone with heart failure that we might have room to go in diuresis. So right. this is sort of what they did. They kind of looked at the LVEDPs for all these patients with CAD after they exercised. So, I mean, is volume a part of this? How does that connect to the dyspnea? Right. That's, I think it's a really great question. Um, and, and so one thing to remember is that there's, there's at, least, at least two things, and there actually are probably more, but there are two things that I usually think about as being determinants of your left ventricular end diastolic pressure. And so one is the volume, and that's what you're referring to, Hannah, right? So if you have a, a lot of extra volume uh, in a patient who has uh, heart failure, for example, their LVEDP is going to be increased. And the other thing that can increase LVEDP is uh, decreased LV compliance. All right, so let me state that again. So if you have more volume in the LV um, without a change in compliance, the pressure is going to go up. Or if you have the same amount of volume, but the compliance has gone down, the pressure is also going to go up. So it could be either one. And so there was some debate in the 60s and 70s when they were first measuring the pressures in the LV during ischemia. They're like, we don't know which one it is. And really in the 1970s, it became clear that it was uh, a decreased compliance. And this came from studies where they would uh, do pacing-induced ischemia. So they would put an, uh, an LA pacer in and they would just make the heart rate go up. And they would measure both the, uh, the end diastolic pressure, but also the end diastolic volume. And what they would find in these patients with angina is that the pressure went up, but the volume did not increase. Um, and so it wasn't the volume, but they did find a decrease in compliance. So with ischemia, the LV was stiffer uh, due to decreased compliance, and that would increase the end diastolic pressure. Um, and so there's a few different theories for like why that might occur. Um, and I think right now, as best I understand, uh, the kind of like leading theory is this idea of, uh, the rigor bond. Rigor bond, like rigor mortis. 
I, I think so. I, I think it's basically sounds, the same idea. Sounds the same. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I think it's the same kind of phenomenon with rigor mortis where, um, you know, after someone has died and there's not enough ATP, the muscles don't relax, and so there's increased stiffness. And so I think it's the same thing in the LV because um, – you know, we have to remember that relaxation of muscle, whether it's skeletal muscle or cardiac muscle, is energy dependent. Um, and so more specifically, it's dependent on ATP. Um, the ATP is used to pump calcium back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum, and it's used to dissociate actin and myosin cross-bridging. So you need ATP to relax a muscle. Um, and if you've got a, a someone with CAD and they're exercising, um, they're... The, the vessels that are feeding uh, the myocardium are going to deliver less oxygen, less ATP is going to be created. And when the L ATP levels drop, this ATP-dependent relaxation is going to be blunted. That's going to lead to increased decreased compliance. The decreased compliance is going to lead to increased LVEDP. So it's like you can you can sort of see we're marching our, cell, our, our way backwards in this like you know flow diagram that eventually is going to lead to dysmia. Eventually. Eventually. Well, I, I would say I, I have to work hard to relax too. I mean, it. I know diastole is hard. Um. Yes, it is. That's, right. that's your like relax. your day right now, Hannah. Like this is your diastolic day at your one day off. It's not easy to relax. <laughs> it's all about the filling time. Anyway, all right. Let's let's take a se take a second and go through everything that we've talked about so far before we get to how this actually gets to dyspnea. So Heberden and Osler first noted <laughs> this connection. Been waiting on that for like ten minutes, uh, but really what we did is figured out we essentially put people on treadmills first in 1968 and then in the uh, in this Mayo Clinic study from slightly later and figured out one that. When people with CAD were experiencing ischemia, they were feeling dyspneic, mm -hmm. and two, that their left ventricular and diastolic pressures were what was going up, specifically right. with exercise. Yes. And then kind of thinking through what causes an increase in left ventricular and diastolic pressure. So one could either be volume or the second could be compliance. And we know from animal studies. Wait, sorry. Did we did we do this with animal studies, or did they actually pace no, humans? These, these are human beings. Oh, geez. Okay. So we know. <laughs> oh, well, there probably were animals at some point, but this this was a human. This one from 1972 uh, with atrial pacing that was humans. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Anyway, so we know from these studies, though, that it's the compliance aspect, right? So left ventricular and diastolic pressure is either volume or compliance. And in this case, we know that it's compliance and maybe it has something to do with diastole being a, an energetic process. Okay. So I'm short of breath for all of that. <laughs> is the patient short of breath? Uh no, not yet. They they may have an increased uh, LVEDP, but uh, that in and of itself, uh, unless there's something I haven't come across, and and I'm not sure, Avi or Hannah, if you've come across anything, I don't think that in and of itself leads to the um, the dyspnea. But that pressure um, is going to be transmitted to the left atrium, um, assuming the patient doesn't have you know severe mitral stenosis. And then it's going to be transmitted to the pulmonary vasculature. And then once it's in the pulmonary vasculature, this last step for how it leads to the dyspnea, I'll be honest, 
I, I don't know that I read something that was definitive that said it's absolutely X. Um, but I did come across a few leading theories, and I'll share two with you, and uh, I'm interested in if, if you guys have any insights or thoughts. Um, so the, the two things that I came across most commonly were that the, the increased pressure in the pulmonary vasculature led to decreased lung compliance, and that that led to dyspnea. And the other was that the increased uh, pulmonary vascular pressures led to interstitial edema and then activation of C fibers. And, the C, and C fibers are known to be uh, dyspneogenic. So, so one of the studies I mentioned earlier, uh, one, the one with the atrial pacing that found the decreased um, uh, LV compliance, they also found decreased lung compliance uh, in these patients who had uh, LV EDPs that were up. And so their hypothesis was that the interstitial edema was leading to um, worsening lung mechanics, and it was that that was leading to dyspnea. So Avi, you're our resident pulmonologist. Does that seem like a, a reasonable hypothesis to you? Yeah, it does. I mean, uh, certainly congested lungs are stiffer lungs. Um, that's well known. And I think they're also there could be an airway component and resistance as well in the sense, you know, we've probably all heard the cardiac wheeze, so-called, when people are in acute pulmonary edema and they sound very wheezy, that congested interstitium that you get can actually narrow the bronchioles and cause an increased airways resistance and then also contribute to, to dyspnea too. Yeah, and, and I think one thing to remember is that it's, you don't have to have massive pulmonary edema that, such that you would see it on chest x-ray, but you might have just enough interstitial edema uh, that it leads to the decreased um, lung compliance. So anyway, the, the other hypothesis, again, relates to activation of the C fibers. Um, uh, decades ago, they were known as juxtacapillary or J receptors. And these are, um, they're activated when the pulmonary vascular congestion is increased. Uh, and again, they can lead to the sensation of dyspnea via simulation of the, of the vagus nerve. And there are a number of case reports um, of patients uh, who undergo vagotomy um, or vagotomy, and that actually alleviates the sensation of dyspnea. And so one case report that we'll put in the show notes uh, was this 43-year-old patient who had unilateral pulmonary venous obstruction, so had very elevated pulmonary pressures on one side, and she had dyspnea that was just unrelenting, and they couldn't really find an explanation. So they decided to just cut the vagus nerve, and that stopped her dyspnea, and she was essentially cured. Uh, I, and I, like I, I said, I think it's – yeah, go ahead, Avi. Well, I think that fits really well, too. If you think about the histology of the J receptors or the C fibers, whatever you want to call them, the juxtacapillary um, name is really appropriate. They're right, right. next to the blood hmm. vessels. And so, right. you know, congested um, – uh, pulmonary vasculature is going to irritate and trigger those those J receptors. Um, yeah, they terminate right in the interstitium, right by those capillaries. So if you have a little bit of interstitial edema, it like, doesn't need to be a lot, just enough to activate these receptors. Again, you don't have to see it on chest x-ray. You don't have to see it on, on CT. You just have to have enough for these things to be activated. Um, but I'll tell you, it's it's. I don't know that it's totally a, a done deal, settled deal, that this is like the final part of the, the pathway to dyspnea. It's just one that you'll often see. Yeah, it's so interesting. I So um, 
uh, a primary care patient of mine had um, very, very severe aortic stenosis and basically was living with these like really chronically elevated pressures. Um, like his wedge pressure was 22. Um, but he didn't actually, I mean, he didn't have that much dyspnea. And something that we talked about was sort of what is the the extent of collateral circulation because dyspnea wasn't his predominant symptom. Mm-hmm. And so what is kind of the extent to which these chronically elevated pressures have have led to collateral pulmonary circulation building up? And I, I just, you know, I, I'm sort of curious if it's almost the opposite of that unilateral pulmonary venous obstruction in that patient right. where um, over time there's compensation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know about, I mean, I don't know about collateralization, but I, I know that, you know, the, the pulmonary vasculature is very, it's a high compliance circuit. And so it, over mm-hmm. time it can... For any given pressure, like uh, left ventricular and diastolic pressure, you'll have less pulmonary congestion um, if it's more chronic. So that's why sometimes people with really high wedge pressures don't have a lot of pulmonary edema, even though you'd expect them to have Mm -hmm. that. But they might have- If it's chronic uh, and they've accommodated. But they still might have dyspnea if there's some interstitial edema. Totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Hmm. So- how can an like how could I use all of this information that we've talked about if I saw that patient or if I saw another patient uh, with dyspnea as a anginal equivalent? Yeah, and so so I think one thing is you know going back to that original study from 1968 that found dyspnea as a common chief complaint. Just you know don't ignore it in someone mm. who you th- who has risk factors you think um, you know oh they don't have chest pain so it, it it's not um, CAD it, it certainly can be, um, and in fact. Um, uh, there's some data suggesting that uh, because we're talking about the LV in all of these discussions, um, there's some data suggesting that patients who have a presentation of dyspnea as their anginal equivalent are more likely to have LV involvement, LAD involvement, uh, potentially worse disease. Um, and one study, in fact, found that the anterior MIs uh, were more often um, presented with dyspnea compared to say an RV MI, which is less likely to present with dyspnea. And it kind of makes sense, right? If we're talking about LV EDP, um, the LV should be the part of the heart that's ischemic. Um, and you know, dyspnea is actually also associated with worst outcomes. And so if we have a patient coming in, um, with dyspnea plus or minus angina that, you know, I'm not necessarily sure how that's going to acutely change our management, but we should probably have a heightened sense of concern about that patient. And it may be that they're more likely to uh, also have heart failure concurrent with that. Um, but mm. these patients, I think, can be sicker than the patients who have just angina as their chief complaint. And then I'll offer one other cool connection that may or may not help uh, you know you as an intern or me and Avi um, I sure as attending. It, it doesn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but so this is about the idea that uh, ticagrelor, uh, one of the antiplatelet agents, is known to be dyspneogenic. Uh, so in randomized trials uh, comparing it to say clopidogrel, it, the patients have much more dyspnea. Um, and the, what's interesting as far as a connection is tacagrelor inhibits clearance of adenosine, and it's actually adenosine that's activating the C fibers. Um, uh, uh, um, and so there's this sort of interesting connection that maybe tacagrelor is causing the same kind of dyspnea that, um, th- that this anginal equivalent is. Um, so I, I don't know. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, that is really yeah. interesting. Yeah, and we've we've focused on on left ventricular ischemia on this episode, but you know, 
right ventricular ischemia and infarcts can also produce dyspnea. Those patients can present dyspneic as well. And I didn't see a lot of literature on the mechanisms for, for that, but I think a couple of possibilities. One, you know, they, they can have acute decreases in cardiac output, certainly, and as the RV fails. And another one might be that with increase in RV pressure volume overload, because of an interventricular interdependence, you get impaired filling of the left ventricle as the right ventricle dilates. And that would elevate the left ventricular end diastolic pressure and link to those mechanisms, Tony, that you've been talking about. Um, so I think that's an, another kind of interesting question that's been, it seems like less studied than, than the LV. It is less studied and, and it's to somewhat, to some extent problematic because RV infarcts, as you said, clearly can present with dyspnea. And I don't think it's only because they, they have, they're in heart failure. I think some of them, it's just the ischemia in and of itself. Well, Tony, thanks again for a really interesting episode. And can you give us your take on points? Uh, sure. So, um, so number one, uh, myocardial ischemia leads to decreased LV compliance and the decreased LV compliance leads to increased LV EDP. So, it, you know, it's going to come back to LV EDP in a lot of these, um, uh, scenarios. That increased LVEDP is transmitted to the left atrium and then to the pulmonary venous system. Uh, and then this leads to interstitial uh, congestion, interstitial edema. And that interstitial uh, edema leads to dyspnea. And whether it's from decreased lung compliance from you know poor mechanics or activation of the pulmonary C fibers, I think that last piece is the piece that, at least based on the reading that I did, uh, that's that's less settled. Um, but it's it's probably one of those two, if not obviously a combination. Great. Well, that's it for today's episode. Next time on the podcast, we'll be asking, why does umami taste so good? In the meantime, thanks again for joining us. If you have an interesting tutorial or online meta teaching point you think that we should feature on the show, please tag us on Twitter. I'm at Abraham Cooper MD. And I'm at Tony underscore Brew. And I'm at Hannah R. Abrams. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at, at CuriousClinPod. You can also join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to st stay up to date on episode releases and receive the show notes for each episode in your inbox. You can find information how to get CM on CMEA and mock credit for just listening to the episode on the website as well. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. Bye. Bye. The Curious Clinicians are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer continuing education and ABIM maintenance of certification credits for physicians. Tap the link in the show notes or visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curiousclinicians for more information.